Lord, this morning, we're so thankful that you have allowed us to come together once again in your presence, Lord. God, as our hearts are heavy for Matt, we do continue to lift him up before you. Lord, we do pray a special prayer upon his family. God, this morning, also, as we come to your word, Lord, help us, Lord, come with an attitude, Lord, of being able to receive your word. Lord, change the areas of our heart that need changed. Correct us, Lord, where we need corrected. Lord, help us, God, to, to bend toward you and away from the world. God, we need you more now than ever. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to rule and to reign in our lives. God, we need to be led by your Spirit. Lord, we need to be able to have the, the power of the Spirit to proclaim your name so that people will be drawn unto you. Lord, because we, our words, they fall to the ground, but your word is eternal. Lord, we love you this morning. God, we pray your blessing upon this time. May everything that's said and done here today bring honor and glory to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so very much. I also wanted to give a congratulations to the engagement couple, uh, James and his beautiful fiance there. Congratulations. Lots of exciting changes on the horizon. I do pray that... Uh, that we will always be walking with the Lord. If you're turning your Bibles, we're going to be looking not in the book of Romans, but we're moving over to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1. Uh, I wanted to move to a little bit of a narrative account. It's found on your, in your pew Bibles, page 57. Uh, and if, you're, if you look there, you'll know that we are a Bible-believing church. I always want to drive your attention. To, every week we gather here, we are a Bible-believing church. If you look there... Because in the Bible, the words of eternal life are found. You won't find them anywhere else. Other people might have their theories or suggestions, but if you want to have peace with God, you need the forgiveness that only Jesus can provide. That's what the gospel's all about, and that's why it's a privilege to draw your attention not to the pastor's opinion, but to the word of God, because faith comes by hearing. So let's reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, infallible, inspired word as given in the originals. We'll be looking at the ESV version, uh, which is translated in English, eighth grade reading level, but it's very accurate to the Greek text. So this is God's word, Exodus chapter one. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Aphtali, Gad and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was already in Egypt. Verse 6, then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all of that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, <coughs> the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, verse 10, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and, and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, verse 11, they set taskmasters task masters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramesses, 
But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, the covenant people. Verse 13. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Verse 17. But, notice that, that, uh, that conjunction. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll take the reading of the word and especially the preaching of it to make it effectual. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Welcome to the book of Exodus. In this book, God introduces himself to humanity. You might think that there's other places where you're going to find God, but Moses does something very special. He moves us from general revelation to special revelation. We get to see some insights about God that we didn't see before. Moving from the, from the general revelation of creation's fingerprints in chapters 1 through 3 in Genesis, you know, when God made everything out of nothing, it's evidence of nature. There's nobody without excuse. They should see God. General revelation. But we're also moving from the general revelation of a righteous conscience. You know, things matter. If you go to chapter 6 and 9 of Genesis, God ended up sending a flood. He used a lot of rain. He shook up the earth and he brought fountains of the deep coming forth. But why? Because the general revelation of a moral conscience. If you do sin, you're going to reap the consequence. That's general revelation. Everybody has a concept of justice. Then, if you look a little further in chapter 12 of Genesis, you find that God actually has a general revelation of an intimate call with a person. God has, in a sense, an interest in a soul. He shepherds that guy named Abraham. He calls him and leads him. But now, in the book of Exodus, the special revelation of God is that he is not just a personal God, but he has a people. This God is going to dwell in this world in an interesting way because of the covenant community. This book is not simply historic in nature. It's also didactic. And what I mean by historic is not just telling a story that's true. The actual didactic is that it teaches. It shows you some things as a book that is more than just the storyline that you follow through. It is an actual metaphor where God is actually giving us a picture of his great salvation, of his redemptive purposes in the realm of time. And it's all in relation to his being a God who has a people. It is the revelation of our loving God who is able to deliver us. Now, within the 40 chapters of this, of this book by Moses, uh, we are introduced to God. He's an amazing God, and he engages with people. He abides with people, and fascinatingly, 
In, in Exodus, he dwells with people when you look at the tabernacle, with people like you and me. I don't know if you've ever pictured Exodus like that. It's not just a continuation of the story. It's fascinating to know our God like this. In fact, if I take you um, to uh, Exodus chapter 3, give you a couple examples. In Exodus chapter 3, uh, beginning, down, it's going to be down in verse 13. But in Exodus 3 is when Moses actually talks about his own encounter with God. You remember, Moses wasn't around until Exodus. Everything in Genesis is that he had to get by revelation from God. But in chapter 3, we hear his first encounter with God. God calls him and he says, I want you to go to Pharaoh. And he says in verse 13, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is your name? What should I tell them? You see, this is the revelation of God to the people, to humanity. What do you say? And God told Moses what to tell the people. I am who I am. Yahweh, the eternal I am. And he said, this is to the people, and say this to the people of Israel, the I am has sent me to you. It's pretty interesting how all that came to pass. But I can also show you that throughout Exodus, that was in chapter 3. If I jump all the way to chapter 20, and I think everybody knows what's in chapter 20. The Ten Commandments. At the beginning of the Ten Commandments, the preface we call it, Listen to how God spoke again to the people. This time he didn't go through a mediator. He was speaking directly to the crowd. In some ways, he's speaking directly to you and me. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. In other words, I am God the Lord. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, it's very interesting to hear how God is saying, yes, I am that I am. And now he says, I am your God. By God's grace, we see the gospel here. We are introduced to hope, to patience, to the power of God and to love. If you're following along, if you take the fourth point sheet that's in the back, taking some notes, I want to break down this sermon, this portion of 17 verses into three points all around Egypt, to Egypt, over Egypt, and of Egypt. If you're looking there in verses 1 through 5, uh, you see the word to Egypt. In fact, it's verse 1. These are the names of the son of Israel who came to Egypt. When we look at this, we're going to see something about God's providence, how they got to Egypt in the first place. The second thing that I'm going to show you is about over Egypt. If you go down to verse 8, you're going to be able to see it clearly in the text. But there arose a new king over Egypt. Now, when you look at that, you're going to see, uh, instead of God's providence, you're going to see man's problem. It's pretty sad, but it's pretty obvious. The third uh, prepositional phrase is the word of, and it's found all the way down in verses uh, 15 and 17. And in verse 15, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their bitter lives and made their lives bitter with the hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them as slaves. And the king of Egypt, that was the key there, the king of Egypt. 
And that, that phrase of Egypt is repeated in verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. So for, uh, for, for a memory's sake of chapter 1 of Exodus, I hope that you'll remember the to, over, and of Egypt. And as we do that, I think it'll actually stick in your mind and say, wow, the title of this message has to deal with the people of God suffering, the difficulties. If you look at the front of the bulletin, you'll see what's on the bulletin card as well. It is God's way out of Egypt. So uh, I'm going to be taking you through about the hard times that people live in. The first point is to Egypt. Uh, what we do when we look at this is we see God's providential care. A lot of times you might think Egypt is bad. That pastor is saying, don't go to Egypt. And if any of you have an Egyptian heritage, oh, no, tough luck for you. No, I am not saying that. In fact, I would encourage you, if you get a chance to see the pyramids and things like that, go see it. I'm not sure how safe it is, uh, but there was a season when I was able to go see it. It was pretty interesting to see Cairo, to see that beautiful Nile River, to be able to be exposed to some of the places and things that are here. But these people made it to Egypt, and it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an afterthought. When they find themselves in these hard conditions, you have to take notice of how they got there. There's, it's God's ways, God's providential ways. I see three of them that got them to Egypt. The first was of God's ways is the circumstances. The second is going to be time. And the third is children. To where they got to where they are, God has an interesting way of working it together for good. God's ways include circumstances. You can see his domestic insight providing direction. We know from the list here that there are 70 people that have come to Egypt. Any of you remember from reading it who they were? Was it Tom, Dick, and Harry? No, we know that this is Jacob and his kids. And how many kids did Jacob have? How many sons? We have 12. Now, if you look at the list, there's not 12. Did you pick up on why they only listed 11? Because Joseph was already there. Okay, so the idea of how did you get God's people from the land of promise, from the land that Abraham, their, their grandfather and great-grandfather, had been promised. Why would they ever leave? Well, they did. The circumstances overcame them. And even though they had a place to dwell and they were prospering, they had moved from just Abraham and his small band, now there is a family with 70 that means they've got kids and some grandkids. Uh, and, and when they gather together, they come to Egypt. Okay, let me put your thinking cap on. How did they get there? I'm not asking you what kind of vehicle. It wasn't a Lamborghini or a Lexus or, or even an electric car. It wasn't. Just want to clear that up. The reason they got, they, they made the journey to Egypt was because they were hungry. They were starving. They were hard times back in Israel. And I think the people might have even felt that God had forsaken them because he told them it was a great land. And while they're there, they're, they're, they're getting skinny. It wasn't that they were, you know, they didn't have Oreo cookies and all these things. The shelves were barren. People had lived seven years with no rain. They were starving. And they heard on the internet that there was food down in Egypt. Now, you know it wasn't the internet, but the word got out. 
And so God providentially worked in the circumstances to get him down there. And if I took you to, uh, to the last chapter, if you flip over to chapter 50, verse 20, you're going to see this, this is the connection between Moses writing the first book and the second book. In chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph says, As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We believe in the providence of God. We believe in the sovereignty of God. We know that God is big and great and he can work things together. Well, it's kind of interesting how he got them to Egypt. It wouldn't be the way that I would have planned it. I wouldn't have wanted to have people to have to pick up and move because there's no food, because they're starving. It's weird how God works it together for good. But Joseph told us that God worked it together for good. That he had gotten to Egypt, not by accident, but by God's design. He had gotten to the throne room. He had basically was telling the Pharaoh what to do. And it's interesting that his brothers finally show up in Egypt too. They finally got to Egypt. And that's what Moses in Exodus 1 is telling us. Remember the story how God works things together for good. Now, if you go down to verse six, you're gonna find out that God's circumstances, God's ways continued. He said in verse six that there was some deaths. Joseph died, his brothers died, and all the generations died. Now, that's not to make you cry. I don't want you to boo-hoo. You know, we already know from the rest of the Bible in Psalm 90 that we are to number our days. We're not made for this world to live forever on this earth. We have to be changed. Read about that in 1 Corinthians 15. A great transformation. We have to have the uh, mortal put on immortal. And that all comes when we've been born again, God guarantees us. But in verse 6, we're introduced to the commodity of time. You know why Joseph died and why his brothers died and because everybody else died? Because 400 years passed by. And I think they're probably happy that they died because I don't think they wanted to have a 400-year-old body in this time in Egypt. It is not a condemnation, even though it is a, a connected in the New Testament, that death comes as a wage of sin. But really, Moses is telling us that time has passed, that God has allowed not just one year, not just two years, not just one century, but four centuries to pass. That death is not the only the wage of sin, but it is the means that God is able to use things because everyone is enjoying this provision of grace that our days are numbered. The third thing that you find here in this verse 7, if you're following along with me, is after we realize that time has passed, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. The reason I told you not to cry is because if you look at the next verse, time wasn't a detriment. Time was a blessing. What was going on in all these extra days that they had to live and the extra centuries? See if you can figure it out. Population went from 70 to 2 million. What do you think was going on? Some of you are smiling like you just figured it out. Listen, when I do premarital counseling, I have to deal with this a little bit, but you don't have to tell people that much. Why? Because God has ordained that when a husband and a wife come together, the two shall become one. Where do we learn that? Genesis 1 or Genesis 2, 24. The building block of the whole inst of the civilization is family. 
And what we find during this season of time is that God has been blessing these families with children. They have children and their children have children. And they have so many children, they almost sound like they are like a swarm of, of insects. Listen to the text here in verse 7. It says, but the people of Israel were fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied. They grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. I mean, they're everywhere. It's almost like the frogs and the flies during the, uh, uh, during the, the plagues. Isn't it interesting that God's ways not include, they, they not only include circumstances and, the, and the, the covering of time, but it also includes procreation and the building block of society, which is to children. We find these pregnancies are noticed. We see that babies were a blessing. We are told that there's strength linked to this community because of the new generations that were multiplying. And we see that influence comes because of this increase. Wouldn't it be neat to see that even in our own church community? To see numbers and numbers of children and the new generation coming, the strength that would be here and the influence that we would carry. That is what we see in the two Egypt. God worked it together in an interesting way. Now, I told you the second part is over Egypt. If you're looking there in verse 8, there arose a new king over Egypt. The text goes on to say that this new king did not know Joseph. In other words, over time, there has been a disconnect. This new king who is over Egypt said to the people, Look, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. And then he goes on to say in verse 10, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. And then he presents his plan. So I want you to be able to see over Egypt that this, that over time, not only were there blessings for the people of God, but there was more curses for the outsiders. For there a king arose who didn't remember how God had done great things in the land of Egypt. The secular community had lost their perspective. This is the new leader. And he lacks this historic perspective. He does not know. Has he ever been taught? Never experienced these blessings himself. How sad it is. Now I have to tell you that it's even sadder when you go to Judges chapter 2, verse 10. Judges 2.10 tells us that there was a, uh, this was right after Joshua died. And Joshua had conquered the land. And it says that a generation grew up that didn't remember Joshua or the, uh, or the great exploits that God had done. In Exodus, we find the secular guy not remembering what God had done to bless the secular community. In the book of Judges, we find that the Christian community or the, the covenant community had forgotten what God had done. You see, this is a dangerous thing when, when the historic perspective is gone. When the new generation doesn't get the truth. Now, in verse 9, we find that this new leader possesses a personal preservation perspective. When you look there, you can say that he sees some things. That he sees some things that are dangerous to him. He says, look, look, these people over here, there are too many of them and they're too mighty. It's kind of like what you see today. When people are self-absorbed and they say, hey, I look around and too many people are out there and too many people are going to mess up what I have. And so what do they want to do? What does our world want to do? What are you feeling pressure to do? We have to change. They want us to not have any more children. They want us to limit the population growth because, of course, they believe in what they call overpopulation. And if you go back and look at some other countries, even China, 
Some of you that have lived in China can testify that they used to only let a family have one kid. Now they've changed that a little bit. But this perspective of saying, hey, I got to look out for number one. We got to take care of ourselves. And so you find that, the, that everybody else becomes too many or too mighty. And I've got to have to I, I see this as an attack on me. Now, the third thing you find out about this guy that's over Egypt is that he implements the secular agenda. Just like I was just talking to you that in our modern vernacular, folks that are not looking forward to heaven are trying to make heaven on earth. Some of them have bought into this theory that they can make this world a better place, that it can have less carbon and it can have more green and it can have less pollution. And the way that they want to get less pollution is really to have less people. Now, you may not have picked up on all of that. They want you to have whatever you want to have, but don't ruin it for others. This new leader over Egypt implements a secular agenda something that's different from God's. And so he gives an invite, a corporate play, an agenda, and, then he, and let me show you how he does it. The invite, come. Okay, instead of feeling like he's an alien, he's now trying to rally everybody to his side. Come, because he says, let us. It's a corporate play. He's, even though he's got this personal preservation perspective, he says, I want to have my team surrounding me and in agreement. So the agenda is exactly what it says in Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? And the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder, cast away their cords from us. Now, when you listen to that, David is writing that in Psalm 2. But their experience is this in Exodus 1. The king over Egypt wants to cut the cords we want to get rid of those people that are too many and too mighty. And so the way he does this is by using this fascinating thing called division. Division. He labels them. Do you see what the text calls it? If you have it there in verse 8, he said, or verse 10. Come, let us deal shrewdly with, with them. It's us versus them. Us versus them. He has labeled them. They're no longer neighbors. They're no longer humans. And interestingly enough, they're not even enemies. They're nothing. They're less than enemies. Pastor, how do you say that? Because look at the actual text. It says, we don't want these kind of people to fight against us with our enemies. It's at, the, it's, uh, at this next phrase in verse 10. We don't want these things to multiply, and if war breaks out, we don't want these things to join our enemies, the real people that are out there that are actually people. Do you see what I'm trying to show you? Is that this king over Egypt has bought into a mentality that some people have value and some people don't. And so the pitch, the reason he tries to motivate his team, he says it's going to be fight or flight, they're either going to rise up to fight us or they're going to get up and flee. They're going to, they're going to run away and we're going to lose our, our cash cow. It's really quite interesting. This is the pattern of this fallen world. Ignorance of God and of God's ways. And it leads to the fear and to a personal attack. And that's why we live in difficult, difficult times. Brothers, now let me move to you the next preposition. 
We've already looked at how they got to Egypt and how the new king came over Egypt. And now we are talking about the king of Egypt. When you see this phrase two times, it is, uh, it is an indicator of the status quo. The, this is the way things are now. It is what it is, as they like to say. How close that is to I am who I am. But when they get into this zeitgeist, a description of the new culture, this is the new way that we find ourselves. And by the way, if we had lived some 250 years ago, do you think life would be the same? Would the issues be the same? And the answer would be is there would be a lot of similar issues, but the enemies would be different. The ones who are overlords would have different perspectives and pressures. But we find ourselves here today like they did in Egypt. They were of Egypt, the people of Egypt. Jesus used similar words when he said, of this world. If I take you to John chapter 18, verse 36, you can listen to the preposition. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to them. My kingdom is not of this world. Do you see how he is using that phrasing? You can find it also in John 16, where he talks about the ruler of this world. In other words, it's not the prince and power of the air. You can hear that it's not Jesus saying it. We're seeing how the evil one who goes about like a roaring lion is the ruler of this age. John chapter 8, way at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus said to them, you are from above. He says, uh, he said to them, you are from above. You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Now, when you start realizing this, the of is asking the question of each one of us. Are you of this world? Be careful how you answer that. Of this world means that God's rule is being denied in Egypt. Go, the goal of this regime has changed. It's not to glorify God and to enjoy him. The goal of this regime of this world is to afflict. They want to imply, the, they, they imply the weakness. They want to bring weakness instead of strength. They wanted to stop the increase of children. They wanted to basically destroy the family unit. Now, how did they do this? What was the plan that they had in Egypt? Listen to this. I was, I was fascinated because I've heard it on the news, even in a modern era. There was three things. They wanted to grow the government class with bureaucrats. They wanted to increase the taxes on the working class by burdening the laborers. And they wanted to use the labor to profit the ruling class to fix up their financial portfolio. Now, I know that sounds a little political, but let me explain it as the text shows us here. It says that the king was... Um, uh, the king had this plan to change things. And so if you're looking at verse 10, he says, uh, excuse me, in verse 11. So they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. So do you see the plan unfold there? They said in order to keep control, in order to make sure that we get to keep our position, we're going to have a bigger government. We're going to have taskmasters that are going to multiply so that we are over top of them. Then secondly, we're going to make it really difficult for them. We're going to increase the burden for them so that the laborers or the, the, the blue collar workers, they're going to have to work really, 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 really hard. And in a sense, when they're working hard, then they can't be working against us. And then the third thing that really kind of 
got my goad was the, uh, the use of the labor. So what are they going to do with all this extra labor that they're forcing? Who benefits from it? Does the person who works hard, do they get to benefit and take home a bigger paycheck? No, they work harder and harder and harder. And the people that benefit are the government. The king that is over Egypt is now going to not have one extra storage city. He's going to have another. They're going to try to prop themselves up, build up their, uh, their GDP. They're going to make sure that the world is wonderful for them. Because remember, they've already said that the people that are their laborers, they're not even worthy to be called enemies. Now, of this world is similar, it, it's in that same genre of persecution. Pharaoh, the new guy in charge, has come up with his plan. He has a building decree and a bloody decree. In verse 11, we find out that he says, you're going to have to work harder than you've ever worked, and we're going to make it difficult that you won't even be able to harvest the grain. You're going to have to go fetch it and all this. And then the second one was even more subtle. When he comes to the Hebrew midwives and he says, the bloody decree, I order you to kill the baby boys. Persecution in this world. In verses 13 and 14, you see one word repeated, the word ruthless. Ruthless. Is your life easy? Did God promise you that it was going to be easy? The, the, the kings of the earth have set themselves and they are ruthless. Why is it? Because they don't see God. They don't know God. They don't even know that the final judgment is around the corner. What they know is that when they've got power, they don't want to let go of it. And when some people don't, they're not the power hungry because there's four things that people pursue in life. It was a chart that I remember reading. They, they pursue power. They pursue popularity. They pursue uh, um, pleasure. And they pursue, um, con, uh, shall we say, control. Okay, Power is over people. Popularity is with people. Control is over your stuff and your portfolio. And, and the comfort is when you just want to be able to enjoy yourself. It doesn't matter about anybody else. You just want to enjoy yourself. Now, those four things are when an evil heart gets pulled too far in any direction. That's where you're going to have an idol. And these people that are running Egypt, these people that are of this world, are ruthless, trying to get it. Jeremiah says that the heart is desperately wicked, and we could see it on display. As I wrap up the sermon, I want to add one more preposition, the word from, from Egypt. In verse 17, it tells us that there is a higher power, higher than that of the government. And if I read it for you, you'll be able to see it clearly, where it says of the women there, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. There is a higher power than government. There is a call to fear and to obey God when man's law is godless. In fact, this is repeated by Peter in Acts chapter 2, or Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Peter said, uh, we must obey God rather than man. We can't be silenced just because the government says you should be quiet. We need to do what God tells us to do because he's God. And this is where you get the deliverance from Egypt. But before I go any further, the temptation is that we don't like to leave Egypt. We tend to want to hold on to our Egypts. 
And uh, let me take you to Numbers chapter 11. You might, you might feel the sting of this one. It says, now, verse 4 of uh, Numbers 11, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. Now, this is saying there was a group of the people of God. They're out there in the wilderness. They're wondering, because that's what the book of Numbers is all about. They're wondering, waiting to get uh, to the promised land. They had to wonder for 38 years after they, they didn't go in at Kadesh Parnia. So as the uh, people, uh, the rabble of them uh, have a strong craving and the people of Israel, they started to weep. They, they started to wail. They, they were crying out and they said, oh, that we just had some meat to eat. We don't like this life that we have. It is full of pain and of misery. Verse five is, is the slam dunk. We remember the way it was. Fish, the fish that we ate there in Egypt. It didn't cost anything to, we could just fish it right out of the Nile. Oh, and those cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic and I better stop. It'll be lunchtime soon. Some of you are saying, oh, if we could just go to that restaurant. Oh, if we could just have that part of the world a little bit more. I want to be there. See, be careful. You haven't come out from Egypt if your heart still wants to be there. The third thing is the deliverance. Deliverance is coming. Deliverance is coming to get you out from Egypt You've heard that old Southern sermon that said, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's a sermon that was preached about Good Friday and about Resurrection Sunday on the horizon. The people were so sad and they were so dis in despair because when Jesus died and the sky was dark and it looked like, you know, he couldn't save himself, so how could he save others? I mean, you heard all the ridicule. You see the mocking of Christ on the cross and it's like, it's Friday. But any gospel preacher will tell you, but Sunday's coming. He's going to rise from the dead. Suffering comes before the deliverance. And when they're in Egypt, there will be suffering. And that's what Jesus said. While you're in this world, while you're in your modern day Egypt, there will be persecution and difficulty. Jesus said in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you might have peace. But while you're in this world, you will have troubles, hard times, tribulation. He doesn't just stop there, but take heart. I'm going to get you from Egypt. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And if you go to John chapter 14, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again to receive you where I am that you may be there also. I'll take you there out from this world. But while you're here, one of his first sermons in Matthew 5 is blessed are you. Let me read it. Blessed are those who are persecuted for doing what's right, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Brothers and sisters, Jesus was telling this to the disciples. And that's what we are. Rejoice while you're still here. We're not of the world, even though we may be in it. For your reward is great in heaven. For they persecuted 
and prosecuted prophets who were before you. So be salt, be light. Don't lose your saltiness. Be light in the world. Don't be hidden under a bushel, but let it shine before men. I finish with Isaiah 55. This is an illustration that is still true today. That God has sent his son into the world. Incline your ear, Isaiah says, come to me. Listen that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David is going to reach you. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not even know, a nation that, that did not know you shall run, that shall run to you because the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. In other words, God is not done. You may be in hard times, but God is going to raise up a witness. Verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him, for he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their bad thoughts. In other words, their godless existence. He says, try to help them to resist it, but you don't fall into it. Or as I might say today, be like a man like Mordecai. Let that person return to the Lord. Let that person have compassion. And to our God, for he will pardon abundantly. This is where the verses are very interesting. Verse 8. For, God's, for God says this. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. You see, when the people of God made it to Egypt, most of us would never have figured out that this was a design of God to show us the great salvation. How could he save? How could he save you? If you didn't need saving, how does he show you you need saving? You end up getting to the end of your rope, like the prodigal son. He thought he had his life together until he had nothing. The people of Israel had nothing. They're crying out. They have an overlord that is implying a great technique to make them suffer, to make them have hard times. But be of good cheer. God's not done yet. One of the little babies that the midwives wouldn't put to death ended up being the one that God was going to raise up as a deliverer. One born of woman, Jochebed, ends up becoming a mighty deliverer for the people out of Egypt. But I wonder here, I stand here today before you, that there is one greater than Moses. He was born of woman, not Jochebed, but of Mary. He came unto his own, and his own didn't receive him. It was a miserable world that he came into. They despised and rejected him. A man of sorrows he was. He was acquainted with the suffering. And we hid our faces. We couldn't even look at how despised and rejected. But he was the one who could bear our grief. He was the one who could take the chastisement for our sin and by his stripes, we are healed. There is one greater than Moses, and he leads us not out of literal Egypt. He leads us out of the bondage to sin. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you that God has started a work, and he will finish it. 
In Isaiah, he says, my word will not return void. As I send out this message of God's providence about man's problem, about man's plan to solve that problem, which makes it worse, and about God's propitiation, he is going to provide one who will die in our place. Do you trust him? Are you loving him? When you look at the empty cross, do you see the message of love? Or do you just see a piece of cloth hanging on a piece of wood? Let us pray. And then we'll take the offering. Lord Jesus, I do pray that you will work in our hearts. That you'll remind us that you are a God of a people, of a community. Lord, this is so fascinating that you would take a stand, not just for one individual, but you took a stand for the people of God. Lord, they had multiplied from being this, just from Abraham and his wife and their little band to now having a family of 70 plus to now having a community of, of 2 million. And you stand there and say, I am your God. And the only reason you can say that is because you were going to pay the price for the sins of those people. We thank you for the message of Calvary, and I pray that it will be applied to our hearts, that this message will not return void, but it will be like a seed planted in good soil, that everyone here would say, yes, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. In his name I pray, amen. I'll stand and worship the Lord together this morning.